This is a conspiracy channel. Tape one. Welcome to the Hush Channel. If you see something, no, you don't. If you hear something, no, you did not. And if it calls your name, no, it didn't. There are things in the woods, in the mountains, that are not human. Something quite strange about the national forests, mountains, sparsely populated areas, protected lands, and the various combinations of such. And with that taken into account, there is also something quite intriguing about this sequence of events. On March 1st of 1872, the 18th president, President Ulysses S. Grant, signed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act, birthing America's very first national park. It became the world's second national park after the Mongolian Bog Khan Mule Biosphere Reserve, which became protected in the year of 1778. Benjamin Harrison was the 23rd President of the United States. He served as a Union Army commander under his cousin, President Abraham Lincoln. He descends from the Harrison family of which the 9th President, William Henry Harrison, the founder father, Benjamin Harris V, the 16th President, Abraham Lincoln, and the entertainer, Elvis Presley, also descend from. The Land Revision Act of 1891 was enacted during the presidency of Benjamin Harrison, allowing him to set aside forest reserves on then- public lands. Harrison established 15 forest reserves containing more than 13 million acres of land. This bill was the result of the concerted action of Los Angeles area businessmen and property owners who were concerned by the harm being done to the watershed of the San Gabriel Mountains by ranchers and farmers alike. American conservationists Abbott Kenny and Theodore Lukens were the key spokesmen for that effort. Today, there are 424 national parks covering more than 85 million acres across the 50 states, D.C., and U.S. territories. In 1897, the Organic Act was passed to protect the watershed and forests while still allowing the timber industry to continue. After becoming president in 1901, Theodore Roosevelt used his authority to establish the U.S. Forest Service as a division of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA. 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, 4 national game preserves, 5 national parks, and 18 national monuments on over 230 million acres of public land. Roosevelt is remembered as a nature enthusiast. However, it was no secret that he enjoyed hunting on the contrary. William Harrison would have gotten a front row experience to what resides in the Appalachian Mountains as he and his regime traveled through the terrain during the Civil War. Not only that, but he himself commanded the 70th Indian Brigade for several battles during the Atlanta Campaign. Battles such as that of Resica, Cassville, New Hope Church, Lost Mountain, Kennesaw Mountain, Marietta, Peachtree Creek, and Atlanta itself. The same can be said for Ulysses S. Grant, who became the Union General under Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War and before that, who served in the Mexican-American War. Now, is it possible that these men also saw something outside of human warfare during these wars? Just think about where they were trekking through during their travels to these 
battlefields, imposing on lands that had until then only been known to the indigenous, lands that were now covered in the blood, sweat, tears, and sorrow of these same indigenous people. But even these indigenous were very weary of certain land and territories, of which the colonizers marched right through, camped at, and tricked through. There is no way they did not see anything, hear anything. When people to this very day hike through these areas and typically come out scathed by something of the fourth kind, not only is their experience possibly otherworldly, but also the different politicians and spokespersons who advocated for these preservation acts to be passed. To many, it seems as though the government has never seemed to care about preservation of natural resources without an alternative reason to do so. Some conspiracists wonder was Theodore Roosevelt's plea to preserve 297,000 miles of land, which would accumulate to the size of Texas and represent 8.5% of the United States territory, was this actually done because of another reason, an otherworldly reason, a contract between terrestrial and extraterrestrial. As there are lore of the indigenous telling that these entities resided on the land before even they themselves arrived, which was tens of thousands of years before European colonizers. The most mysterious phenomena occur in these national parks, forests, and mountains to date. Strange disappearances, strange sightings of creatures of fairy tale, UFO sightings, and abductions. And could it be that these colonizers ran into something that the indigenous forewarned them of and that they simply chucked it up to be savage witchcraft and imagination? However, they later messed around and found out that it was true, that it was all true. You take a map of all the underground caves running throughout the United States and take another map of unsolved missing person cases. Take another map of the United States National Forests and Parks and another of the locations of UFO and strange creature sightings within the United States and they match almost perfectly. There's only so much that can occur before you have to realize that this is not mere coincidence. So the questions remain, did the United States meet its match and construct a contract, a compromise, a secret constitution with these otherworldly beings who despite their origin have been on this planet longer than us humans, hence them being called extraterrestrial. In the eerie heights of our world, mountains loom, making up a quarter of our planet's surface, concealing secrets that send shivers down the spine. Ancient beliefs, eerie mythologies, and chilling tales intertwine as these majestic peaks are said to be the very thresholds where the gods commune with humans, a realm where the supernatural and the otherworldly reign, and where unsettling encounters with extraterrestrial beings are not mere fables, but bone-chilling realities. UFO abductions, whispered in hushed tones, reveal tales of individuals mysteriously vanishing, spirited away to join their celestial deities in a parallel realm. Tonight, we delve into the spine-chilling mysteries of these mountain spirits and the terrifying truths that lurk in the shadows of the peaks. There is so much about this planet we do not understand, from its depths of its oceans to the peaks of its mountains and above. This tape kicks off the Hush podcast, As Above, So Below series, where we explore the heights and the depths of the American landscape 
beginning with a trek through a specific mountain system, the Appalachian Mountains of North America. Appalachian Mountains are a system of mountains trailing from the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador and ending in central Alabama across the states of Maine, New York, New Hampshire, Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Vermont, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Mississippi, and of course Alabama itself as stated previously. And from there it dissipates into the Gulf of Mexico, theoretically forming about 480 million years ago. It is believed that the Appalachian Mountains once reached the same elevations as the highest elevated mountain system in the world, the Swiss Alps. The Rocky Mountains of the western United States is believed to have once extended continually through southern South America by way of linking with the Appalachian Mountains somewhere in Central America and joining the Andes mountain range which lined the western edge of South America from Venezuela extending through Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia to the continent's southern tip, possibly extending through the Drake Passage and into the ice desert itself, Antarctica. Meaning that both the Appalachian and the Rocky Mountains both serve as a part of a continuous land passage from the Arctic to the Antarctic long, long ago. What lies here is ancient. emphasis tonight are the ones that Cherokee call the Nunahai, the immortals of Cherokee tradition, who appear when and to whom they want, usually in the likeness of those they appear before, said to dwell below the surface in townhomes and mounds. There is a place called Nodali located in Georgia's Union County within the Chattahoochee Okanee National Forest. It is a part of the Blue Ridge Mountains section of the Appalachian Mountains, which extends 550 miles southwest from southern Pennsylvania through Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Georgia. The Blue Ridge Mountains are known for their bluish colored haze emanating through the distance. These mountains house the Shenandoah National Park in its northern section and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in its southern section. As for Union County itself, the Cherokee had once built villages throughout Union County and the Nunahai dwellings, according to them, presided amongst the county's mountainous terrain in specific places. But as for Nautilus Lake, it was formed in 1942 by the damming of the Nautilus River and it stands 102 feet wide with an average depth of 35 feet, maximum depth of 98 feet and extends 20 miles wide upstream to the small town of Blairsville, Georgia, which is currently populated by 616 humans. Its neighboring town of Delonia was known as the first site of gold in the United States. However, it is Blairsville that was known to have the purest gold in the mountains of northern Georgia, the yellowest gold of the Kusa mines. During the 1830s, the United States conducted the Indian Removal Act of the Cherokee Nation and other southeastern tribes to relocate them to what was designated as the Indian Territory, which was the land west of the Mississippi River. There is not only the town, not only the lake, but first there was the Nautilus River, which originates in the Blue Ridge Mountains of northern Georgia, flowing for 51.1 miles into the artificial Hiwassee Reservoir of North Carolina. Nautilus River is dammed in Georgia, creating Lake 
Nautili. The area along the Nautili River was once a part of the large Cherokee territory. Approximately 70% of its shoreline is under the jurisdiction of the United States Forest Service and undeveloped. Likewise, there are no large natural lakes in northern Georgia, so Nautili is not alone. Many have heard of the horrors of northern Georgia's Lake Lanier, which was built on top of a thriving black town that was flooded. The tragedies that occurred there are a phenomenon in their own right. But what lies beneath Lake Nautili? As stated priorly, Nautili is located within the Chattahoochee Okanee National Forest. Here are her stories. As legend goes, according to history, myths, and secret formulas of the Cherokee by James Mooney, there was a man in Natalie Town who had once been with the Nunahai when he was a boy. A truthful yet hard-headed man. He was between the ages of 10 and 12 years old when he was out playing near the river, shooting at a mark with a bow and arrows until he became tired. He began to build a fish trap in the water and while he was piling up the stones in two long walls, a man came and stood on the bank and asked him what he was doing. He told the man and the stranger told him that what he was doing was hard work and that he should come up the river to rest a while. Initially the boy hesitated and declined telling the stranger that he was going home to dinner soon. The stranger insisted that the boy follow him to his home and that it would be there instead where he would receive a good dinner and in the morning the boy could return home. After mulling it over the boy ended up going with the stranger up the river where they came upon a house just like the stranger had said. They went and and the boy met the man's wife and other people who had gathered for dinner there. They welcomed him and the stranger and his family provided the young boy with a very fine dinner and they were very kind to him. While eating, the boy saw a man he knew very well named Udisco. This man came in and spoke to the young boy, which only made him feel more at home and comfortable. After dinner, the boy played with the other children there. He fell asleep and in the morning after breakfast, the man got ready to take him home just as promised. They went down a path that had a cornfield on one side and a peach orchard fenced in on the other side. And then they came upon another trail where the man stopped and instructed the boy to follow the trail across the ridge until he happened upon the river road that would lead him directly to his home. The man turned and went back in the direction of his home and the boy did as instructed. However, upon looking back after a ways away, the boy noticed the area the man had walked him into with the cornfield, the orchard, the fence, and the house. It was all gone. There was absolutely nothing there except trees on the mountainside. It was quite odd, but it did not leave the child frightened. He proceeded on until he reached his home where the people of his tribe were gathered around talking. And when they saw him, they were quite surprised, telling of how they had been searching for him since the day before. And they were steady asking him where he had went. He told them and then saw the familiar man from his village that appeared and talked to him at the stranger's home. He commented that he thought that this man would have told the rest of the tribe where he had been, but the man, Udisco, replied that he had not seen the boy and was in fact out with the others searching for him since the day prior. The boy's mother was now confused. She knew of no house in place of where the boy told of. There were only trees and rocks there, but his mom did mention that sometimes she would hear drums in that area and from this she came to the conclusion and told her son that the people that he saw must have been the Nunahai. (laughs) 
Blood Mountain is the highest peak in the Georgian section of the Appalachian Trail. It is the sixth tallest mountain of Georgia with an elevation of 4,458 feet and located on the border of Lumpkin County and Union County within the boundaries of the Chattahoochee National Forest and the Blood Mountain Wilderness, its nearest lake being that of Lake Nautilus. The origin of the mountain's name varies. Some believe it derives from a bloody war that occurred after the initial migration of the Cherokee from the north to the southeast where the Cherokee waged a great battle against the Creek indigenous at the Slaughter Gap. The result being the screams running red with the blood from the warriors killed during the fight for dominance. Others believe its name has something to do with the reddish hue of the lichen and Catawba grape growing near its peak. This particular mountain has mist and fog so dense that to onlookers, the mountain seems to disappear completely from sight at times. According to the Cherokee, Blood Mountain was one of the homes of the Nunahai. There are quite a number of stories about strange phenomena that have actually occurred here. The atmosphere alone leaves hikers with the sense that they stepped into something out of this world. Here's a story that was posted to Reddit in 2014 about the area. Me and a group of friends, four of us total, went to hike on Blood Mountain, a secret mountain for the Cherokee from my understanding. The hike starts off very nice. It starts getting foggy, which we think is pretty awesome looking in the woods. Everything's going fine until I go onto this path that looks freshly made. I walk down it maybe eight feet and I see a single hoof print embedded really deep in the dirt. It looks pretty fresh. My immediate thought is boars, which we weren't prepared to deal with. So we go back and head on. I think about it it now and it seems that it was too big to be a boar but I didn't know anything about how big they could get. About 30 or so minutes later we start hearing stuff walking behind us rustling in the woods and at one point we hear this soft roar. It sounded really strange and quite frankly I have never heard anything like it. At this point we're getting nervous but we still continue. Eventually we come upon a side trail that's marked for shelter. I'm curious so I go to check it out. It's longer than I would like but I keep going. About two minutes down on the trail, I hear a huge rustle next to me. Naturally, I get the hell out of there, running back to my group. I explain what I heard to them and they think it might be a bear. Nothing supernatural or strange comes to our mind. We continue on to the top without any problems, except for some really strange smells and the fog thickening. It is on the way down that we have the real experience, however. The fog is getting extremely thick now. The visibility is probably seven feet ahead at its lowest point and about five feet ahead at its highest point towards the end of the hike. We start back the way we came from the peak and I see something duck behind a tree. It was in my visibility so it was not the fog playing tricks on me. The best way I can describe it was it was definitely humanoid. About a little over half my height. It was black and light gray and half fur. I did not get a good look at its face. I looked behind the tree and nothing was there. We keep going and the fog gets thicker. As we continue we start hearing noises behind us really often. The most concerning moment was the fact that we could not hear any natural noises. The rain was still falling, but there was no sound. There were no birds chirping, no wind. The only sound we could hear was just us. I should explain that we had difficulty coming down the rest of the hike since one of our hikers was having trouble with his ankle, causing us to rest quite often. 
It was during one of these risks. I went off to take a piss. I'm slightly in the woods, but not completely because I am too freaked out to venture away from the group or go off the trail. I hear this heavy breath in my ear. I gasped and turned around. Nothing was there. We continued on, and 20 minutes later, we started hearing the rain and natural noises again like normal. Nothing besides the noises continue until we get off the trail up the mountain and onto a trail off the mountain. We are resting on some rocks, talking about the stuff we saw when six bursts of roars came from in front of us and behind us. It was the same sound as before, and there was no break in between them. It finished with a sound I cannot really try to explain. It was like a mixture between the roar and a snort, and it was right next to me. I shouted, grabbed my knife, and turned, and of course, nothing was there. It was at this point the troubles with the hiker's ankle was so bad, we had to split up into two groups of two and grab the car and wait for them at the trailhead. Me and another hiker go off to get the car, eventually finding the road. We find the two of them and one of them says they saw an old man in what he says are scout uniforms. I assume he meant boy scouts. He said he was in a green and brown button-down shirt and khaki pants, just standing there between two trees, stepped right, and disappeared. We get out of the area and the fog immediately lifts. We all agree we were being followed, but by what is the question? Some of us think of skinwalkers but I believe those are Navajo. Boatmen are an option being considered, especially with the lack of natural noises. Listeners, do I dare say that it was probably the Nunahai. Hawassi River originates from a spring on the north slope of Rocky Mountain in Towns County in the northern area of the state of Georgia. It flows northward into North Carolina before turning westward into Tennessee, flowing into the Tennessee River a few miles west of what is now State Route 58 in Meigs County, Tennessee. The river is about 147 miles long. That's 237 kilometers. The Valley River is a tributary of the Hawassi River. It arises as a pair of springs in the Snowbird Mountains of Cherokee. County, North Carolina, and descends 2,960 feet, which is 900 meters, in elevation in approximately 40 miles, or 64 kilometers, to enter the Hawassi Embayment at present-day Murphy, North Carolina. Anasgai is a traditional town of Valley River in Cherokee County, North Carolina. Long ago, long before the Cherokee were driven from their homes in 1838 by European colonizers, the people on Valley River and Hawassi heard voices of invisible spirits in the air calling and warning them of wars and misfortunes which the future held in store for them. These voices invited the people to come and live with them. Them being the Nunahai, the immortals, inviting them into their homes under the mountains and beneath the bodies of waters. For days, the voices hung in the air and the people listened until they heard the spirits say, if you would like to live with us, gather everyone in your townhouses and fast there for seven days and no one must raise a shout or a war whoop in all that time. Do this and we shall come and you will see us and we shall take you to live with us. The people were afraid of the evils that were to come and they knew that the immortals of the mountains and the waters were happy forever. So they counseled in their townhomes and decided to go with the Nunahai. Those of the Anasgai town came all together into their town home and prayed and fasted for six days. On the seventh day, there was a sound from the distant mountains 
and it came nearer and nearer and grew louder and louder until a roar of thunder was all about the townhome and they felt the ground shake beneath them. Now they were frightened and despite the warning, some of the people screamed out. The Nunahai, in reaction, who had already lifted up the townhouse with his mound to carry it away, were startled by the cry and let a part of the townhome fall to the earth, resulting in the mound that we see today called Setsi. The Nunahai steadied themselves again and began to board the rest of the townhome with all the people in it. To the top of Sunanayanli, Lone Peak, near the head of Shiowa, where we can still see it. However, it has since long ago changed to solid rock. Shooting Creek is a township and one of the six townships of Clay County, North Carolina, United States, and is the easternmost of the six. The other five townships are Brasstown, Hayesville, Sweetwater, Hiawassee, and Tusquiddy. Shooting Creek Bald is a summit or a point on the surface that is higher in elevation at all the points immediately adjacent to it. This specific summit is located in the state of Georgia. Its elevation is 4,318 feet or 1,316 meters. This bald was named after Shooting Creek in North Carolina. In the Appalachian Mountains of the Eastern United States, balds, B-A-L-D-S, are mountain summits or crests covered primarily by thick vegetation of native grasses or shrubs occurring in areas where heavy forest growth would be expected. Balds are found primarily in the Southern Appalachians where even at the highest elevations, the climate is too warm to support an alpine zone, areas where trees fail to grow due to short or non-existent growing seasons. The difference between an alpine summit such as Mount Washington in New Hampshire and a bald such as Gregory Bald in the Great Smoky Mountains is that a lack of trees is normal for the colder climate of the former, but abnormal for the warmer climate of the latter. One example of southern bald's abnormality can be found at Roan Mountain, on the North Carolina and Tennessee border, where the Rhone High Knob is coated with a dense stand of spruce fir forest, whereas an adjacent summit, the Round Bald, is almost entirely devoid of trees. Why some summits are bald and some are not is a mystery. Perhaps these are the areas of high traffic for the Nunahai and the indigenous they took with them, who are now invisible and immortal, just like the Nunahai themselves. The people of another town along the Hawassi River at a place of which we now call Dustaleyani where Shooting Creek comes in also prayed and fasted and at the end of seven days the Nunahai came and took them away down underneath the water. They are there now and on a warm summer day when the wind ripples the surface those who listen well can hear them talking below. The fish drag always stops and catches there at the spot where the Nunahai took the townhouse down. Although the water is deep, the people know it is being held by their lost kinsmen who do not want to be forgotten. You see, when the Cherokee were forcibly removed to the west of the United States, one of the greatest regrets of those along the Hawassi and Valley Rivers were that they were compelled to leave behind forever their relatives who had gone with the Nunahai. Along the Tennessee River near Kingston, just 18 miles below Loudoun, Tennessee, is a place which the Cherokee called Gusti, where there once was a settlement long ago. But one night, while the people were gathered in the townhouse where he danced, the bank caved in and carried them all down into the river. 
river. Today, boatmen passing the spot in their canoes see the round dome of the townhouse now turned to stone in the water below them and sometimes hear the sound of the drum and dance coming up. They never fail to throw food into the water in return for being allowed to cross safely. These stories come from Myths of the Cherokee by James Mooney. Cherokee language, Nunahai translates to the people who live anywhere, but it is often translated to mean the people who live forever or the immortals. In their oral histories, the Nunahai are distinct from ghosts, nature spirits, and gods, and hence rendered to be the equivalent of the fae of Gaelic lore. These fae-like entities are common throughout all the indigenous Americans, not just the Cherokee. Of course, they have different names for them, as the languages between the different groups of the indigenous vary. Some will say that Europeans brought their myths with them. However, it is most likely that these entities already existed in the Americas and the Europeans and the indigenous sometimes syncretized the names of these entities and over time the depictions and descriptions of these entities would sometimes begin to be more European. Just as the indigenous also began to be more European in more ways than one and often by force. As is typical when it comes to colonization of any group and the godlike like beings they foretell of. However, this conclusion is drawn from many similar historical incidents and also that many of the indigenous had oral traditions of such entities prior to colonization. These entities are actually prevalent under many names throughout the entirety of the old world. The Nunahai were said to dwell below the surface in townhome places throughout the southern Appalachian mountains, appearing before humans when they wanted to be seen, and appearing in the likeness of the indigenous they appeared before, even partaking and enjoying the same festivities as the indigenous. Those who are fond of fae lore may call it glamour, which is magic used to hide the true forms of entities. Like the mortals whose dreams they personify, the Nunahai share a reverence for an understanding of the natural world of rocks, plants, and animals. In some ways, they serve as a spirit link and intermediaries between nature and their groups of people they bestow favor upon and towards. They were said to often aid and guide lost hunters, those in distress, and the indigenous, often providing a place for rest and recuperation or aiding in battle or serving as protective forces. The Nunahai were said to choose the Appalachian Mountains as their home due to their fondness of high mountain peaks that were more clear of wooded grounds. As such, it is no surprise that hunters report hearing drumming, dancing, whistling, and chanting, and even seeing strange lights and even stranger shadows in an almost ritualistic way, way out in the distance as they neared the mountain peaks of the Appalachian Mountains. But when following said sounds, especially if through the thick fog where visibility becomes limited to approximately 10 feet in each direction, the sound often suddenly elsewhere and continues to do so leaving hunters bewildered and frightened even. It goes without saying in these parts of the woods that if you see something it is better that you pretend you did not and proceed in the opposite direction. 
better safe than sorry after all. Although Nunahai is a Cherokee word, the Creeks had a legend of similar beings. Said to have once inhabited the Okmulgee Indian Mounds in Macon, Georgia. In revolutionary times, the Creeks still claimed that when forced to encamp there, they heard at dawn the sound of the indigenous singing and dancing. As if going down to the river to purify themselves and then return to the old townhouse. In Myths of the Cherokee by James Mooney, Robbie F. Rich writes, James Adair, an 18th century trader and writer, reported that every Indian knew of the Ahmogi old fields. These old fields, too, were haunted. In fact, according to Adair, one could hear ghost warriors dancing at night. Adair claimed he never heard or saw the ghosts, even though he had often camped there. His Chickasaw companions explained that was because he was an obdurate infidel in that way. During times of war, the Nunahai were known to sometimes assist the Cherokee. There was a time when the Cherokee found themselves at odds with an unnamed, powerful indigenous group who attacked their ancient settlement of Nequasi, which spanned about 100 acres along the flood plain of the Little Tennessee River in its modern-day Franklin, North Carolina region. It was just before daybreak and the Kwasi stood their ground as their enemy encroached upon them, but were ultimately overpowered. There was a stranger who appeared before the Nequasi chief who advised the chief to retreat and he, he being the stranger, would handle the enemy for them. The Nequasi chief followed instruction, believing that the stranger was a chief from a nearby tribe and that the stranger and his people would fight the battle of the Nequasi. While this reigned true, the Nequasi were not expecting the stranger to part the earth, opening up the mound while hundreds of Nunahai warriors flooded out onto the battlefield, let alone the events that followed when these Nunahai warriors suddenly disappeared. They did not vanish, they went invisible while they slaughtered the majority of the enemy's forces with the exception of warriors who had surrendered and begged to be speared. The Nunahai had deduced that the invading tribe were in the wrong for attacking the peaceful Nequasi and thus stated so as their reason for aiding the Nequasi. The Nunahai would once again aid the Nequasi during the American Civil War after the Nequasi territory became known as Franklin, North Carolina. There was a group of Union soldiers scouting Franklin with the intention of burning it down to the ground. These scouts soon saw that the area was very heavily guarded from all angles by soldiers. Soldiers. There would be no type of way that they would be able to have the element of surprise nor the advantage if they just decided to go all in on a raid. The soldiers guarded this town like a fortress. Upon seeing this, these Union soldiers reported back to command and decided to disregard their plan, which was to destroy the town and just continue south towards Atlanta, Georgia, where they proceeded to burn every single town in between. Unknown to these Union soldiers, the town of Franklin was actually defenseless. Every able-bodied person had already left to go fight in the war. The soldiers the Union scouts had seen were Nunahai warriors. The Nunahai are generally quite hospitable towards mortals, especially those who are in trouble. There are a number of stories of Nunahai helping lost travelers and returning them safely to their homes. In 1838, it was said that the Nunahai invited members of the Cherokee Nation to retreat to their domain at Pilot Knob, North Carolina, and thus escape forcible deportation to Oklahoma. Other Nunahai are said to have migrated to Oklahoma as a sort of vanguard for humans forced to walk the Trail of Tears.
Nkwasi was considered one of the Cherokee mother towns, a spiritual, cultural, and ceremonial center where the Cherokee kept an endless secret fire of flame in the fire pit of their town home located on top of the land's mound. It was typical in any Cherokee town to be centered around a platform mound where the community would gather, perhaps because they knew it served as an entrance to the underworld. In ancient times, the spiritual world was known to be below the surface. Perhaps another reason we bow to pray in modern day as it may initially may have been done to be closer to the gods who were underneath the surface thus rendering us to bow and become as low to the surface as we can to communicate with our gods so it makes sense that the Nunaha would come from below the surface to aid the Nkwasi. The fire in Nkwasi, however, was said to have been burning since the beginning of their culture, and every townhouse in Nkwasi thus had a fire pit that was lit from this fire. This mound, to date, is the only surviving feature left of the original town of Nkwasi, which today in modern day is within the Franklin, North Carolina region. The sacred fire of the Cherokee reminds me of the divine fire of the Bible spoken about in Leviticus. Whereas God himself lights the fire of the altar and because of this this divine fire was never allowed to go out and had to be constantly fed to keep a flame. The fire of God was said to always be with them continuously in the pillar of fire above and below and they carried it with them wherever they went. There were certain precautions the priestly bloodline of Aaron the brother of Moses had in regards to keeping the fire aflame, moving it, and the offerings that were dealt to There was an instance in the Bible in Leviticus as well when Aaron's sons did not follow these specific guidelines and are consumed immediately by the flame itself as a direct punishment from God himself. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin, and commit a trespass against the Lord, and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or hath found that which was lost, and leath concerning it, and sweareth falsely, in any of all these that a man doth, sinning therein, then it shall be, because he hath sinned, and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth, in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation, for a trespass offering, unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering, because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments, and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. 
and the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it, it shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar, it shall never go out. And this is the law of the meat offering, the sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord, before the altar. The book of Leviticus, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, King James Version. This is ironic because the Cherokee are a people who are genetically more Jewish than the average American Jew of European ancestry. No wonder as they have DNA markers that are associated with the Berbers, the indigenous Egyptians called Kemites, the Turks, the Lebanese, Hebrews, and Mesopotamians. As explained over several tapes thoroughly about the lineages of Biblical Cam and the deep dive of Biblical Cam himself, all the groups just mentioned, that being the Berbers, the Kemites, the Turks, the Lebanese, the Hebrews, and the Mesopotamians, these are all groups that derive from Cam and his four sons, Cush, Foot, Mizraim, and Canaan. So this connects perfectly and it makes sense why the Cherokee would also have the same tradition of keeping a sacred fire or divine fire. To make this easier for new listeners, I will brief you. Cam is also known as Biblical Ham. He was the grandfather of Nimrod who became the first king of kings after the flood. Nimrod went on to establish Sumeria which is also referred to as Shinar in the Bible. This historical event is even mentioned in the beginning of Genesis where King Nimrod leads all of Noah's generations to Shinar after the flood. Even to date, Sumeria is known as the first cradle of civilization after the flood and an advanced civilization at that. This was spearheaded by Nimrod. Sumeria was the beginning of the establishment of Mesopotamia. Unfortunately, the Bible does not place much emphasis on the importance of Nimrod due to his lack of following the biblical Yahweh and instead adhering to the old religion prior to the flood. This lack of information has caused so much confusion in regards to lost history, origin, and myths. It's like missing the beginning of a movie, which renders the rest of the plot meaningless. It is a shame that such a significant figure in history is not given the recognition he deserves. However, it is Sumeria which became known as Babylon after the flood. From Babylon came the confusion of tongues which forced everybody to disperse and migrate. So Babel becomes the cradle of civilization of which a diaspora occurs. Cam's direct descendants are the indigenous Africans including the original Egyptians who are called the Kemites. But he is also the forefather of others. A few being people such as the Turks, the Lebanese, the Hebrews, East Asians, and of course Mesopotamians. Let's talk about two of his many lineages. Princess Azarad is the great-granddaughter of Cam. She is the daughter of Nimrod. Eber is the great-grandson of Shem. Princess Azarad marries Eber from Shem's lineage, intertwining the Hebrew lineage to the Kemites of Cam's lineage forever, as it is from Eber whose name the term Hebrew originates, and it is he who 
is deemed the father of the Hebrews. Eber and Azariah birthed Peleg, whose descendants scribed the rest of the Old Testament. Eber and Azariah also give birth to Yachtan, who had a plethora of children, most famously being Sheba, Ophir, and Havilah. But Yachtan and his children ventured east of Samaria during the construction of the Tower of Babel, venturing east down into South Asia, settling the Indus River Valley civilization. And these are the people today that we call the Dravidians and the Hindus, which comes from the turn of Indus being pronounced Indus instead. And then some of them would also continue east again, settling Southeast Asia. Canaan, another son of Cam, is the infamous little baby that did not listen. The Cherokee have a connection to the Lebanese and DNA markers because Lebanon in ancient times was in the land of Canaan. In fact, to date, 90% of the genetic ancestry of modern Lebanese people derive from ancient Canaanites. But let's get to where the Turks or people of Turkish descent come in connection to the Cherokee and Cam's lineage. Just like Canaan was a little baby that did not listen, his sons did not follow the rules of biblical Yahweh or Noah either. So they went where they wanted to go. The two sons of importance here is Sin and Heth, whose name is actually pronounced Keth or Keith, just like Ham is actually pronounced Cam or Cham. Sin in Western Asia is known as the progenitor of the Arabian Peninsula and Sinai Peninsula communities. Keith in Western Asia is known as the progenitor of the Hittites. The Hittite Empire in modern day is the country of Turkey. A sect of both Sin and Keith's people would join forces and then migrate east of the Himalayas along the Yellow River Valley, establishing the Yellow River Valley civilization, which was called Kitai, in homage of Keith's name. Kitai in modern day is called China, in honor of Sin's name, as Sin was also called Shin. Over time and generations and times of their people settling, then splitting off again, migrating again, and going further east repeatedly, Sin, Keith, and Yachtan's descendants would interbreed, settle different lands of East Asia and Southeast Asia and Australia and Oceania. Then eventually they would reach the Americas. It is in the Americas where they would run into other descendants of people who had survived the flood in those lands. These were people not spoken of in a Middle Eastern centric Bible. These were the indigenous Americans who told of being aided through the flood by the same group of people that Noah and his family were aided through the flood by in the earliest creation stories found there in Mesopotamia. These entities were called the Anunnaki and the Anunnaki is a broad term for different species of beings that descended onto earth, the whole of the earth. However, the sick of the Anunnaki the indigenous Americans were aided by were called the Anusinom, which were the ant people. Unlike Noah, who was aided by the reptilians of the Anunnaki. It is in the Americas where the Cherokee would continue migrating east. This group over generations would have sex split off and settle, interbreed with other groups, or settle in empty lands becoming their own distinct groups, while the others would continue their migration and the pattern would repeat. In these lands, they found other entities similar to those from the lands from whence their ancestors foretold of in the old country. Some they had even experienced for themselves. These were beings cut from that same clock.
the Giles had the two Othade Danan, who are also called the Fae, who compromised with the Giles after warring against the Giles after their migration to Ireland from the coastal lands of the Mediterranean Sea. The two Othade Danan compromised with the Giles to split the territory of Scotland, Ireland, and the British Isles into two. The Giles were to dwell on the land above the surface, and the two Othade Danan were to retreat through the burial mounds of Bruna Boyne to the kingdom below the surface, the underworld. The Dogon of Mali in Western Africa have the Nomo, who are said to descend from the heavens and what the Dogon back then described to be what is now called a spaceship. These beings then retreated to the depths of the nearby waters and would interchangeably go between land and water as they were said to require a watery environment to sustain themselves in despite being able to exist on land. These beings were depicted as merfolk or reptilians and are the reason the Dogon had astronomical knowledge far out of human eyesight centuries before modern technology was able to do so. Across the thousands of different ethnic groups in Africa are the Njuzu. The Njuzu are deities said to possess the different bodies of waters throughout the continent. These are merfolk, reptilians. Every now and again, the Njuzu abduct humans and take them through trials. Those few who survive become their apprentice, and these human apprentices become known as Nangas. If these Nangas are successful, they are allowed to return from the body of water from which the Njuzu abducted them and serve as witch doctors to their people. While some believe witch doctors and anything perceived as magic is demonic, in the Apocryphal Book of Jubilees, it is Satan and his demons who God commanded to share all the medicines and cures of every ailment humans can be afflicted with. And you know who Satan is in Mesopotamia. Anki, a reptilian who was not as evil as the Abrahamic religions depict him. In Eastern Asia, east of the Himalayas, where the culture shifts from Arabic and Abrahamic religions to serpent revered polytheism and other type of belief systems, it is there where the Nagas exist. Nagas are the East Asian merfolk seen behind East Asian deities or around their necks. Dragons themselves can be seen as a Naga or Nagaraja and Nagarajas are the serpent kings of Nagas which you also see behind deities. Merfolk in these parts of the world are considered shapeshifters that can shift between being 100% aquatic, 100% human or half aquatic, half human. Forms that allow them to exist on land, in the air or in the seas. Outer space after all is a form of water. But what does this have to do with the Nunahai and the Cherokee? These beings, these aliens, these angels, these demons, these fallen angels, these gods, these mythical figures, whatever your perception, programming, and or culture acknowledges them as, they are that. The Anunnaki, who were also spoken of in the records of the indigenous Egyptians who called them the Netaru, and the world's oldest known civilization after the flood, the Sumerians called them the Anunnaki. And out of the hundreds of thousands of texts found in Sumeria, only 10% have been decoded. We can easily from just this little slice how history, religion, mankind, human history, period, has been reshaped throughout time, human migration, human manipulation, and divine intervention. These narratives, after all, serve as the blueprint to all modern belief systems, and it's very obvious. It is told that the mother of the Anunnaki, named Namu, was the first being in existence. She is the primeval waters. Remember, everything is essentially water. Even the air we breathe is a type of water. The water below us is a form of water. The atmosphere is a different form of water. We just have to have the right body to exist in the right form of water. Like, a fish can't exist in this form of water that we exist in. 
and we can't exist in the same form of water that fish exist in. That's just how it works. You gotta have the right body for the right dimension. So Namu is the prime evil water. She's everywhere. Think about what you consider living or sentient. Namu and other literature, religion, and myth is often associated with words such as the void as we see in Genesis of the Bible. Chaos as we see in Greek epics. The abyss, the death of the water, hell, hollowed earth. All of these are terms for Namu. Namu has a daughter named Ninlil of whom in modern day is associated with whichever figures or figures in a religious pantheon whose abilities lie in fertility, love, earth, motherhood, as in being the mother of the gods, Ishtar, Isis, Hathor, Aphrodite, Ocean, Yamaya, the Virgin Mary, Mother Earth, Gaia. Many nights ago during the prior reading of The Secrets of All Ages, the presence of Nun, N-U-N, and similar likely older prefixes used in the name of ancient water entities are prefixes that mean fish, as the Anunnaki name itself encases the N-U-N within its spelling. There is also Nun, the beginning of every creation text of indigenous Egypt, the concept that before the beginning of things there was a liquidy primeval abyss everywhere, endless without form, boundary, or direction, a watery chaos, a cosmic ocean, waters that thousands of years after the Egyptian pyramid texts were biblically parted in God's creation of the earth before mankind, the ocean above us, the oceans below us, of which in modern day is religiously deemed heaven and hell. Ninlil's other binaries throughout the different regions of Mesopotamia were Nintu, Ninma, Ninhursag, Mama, Mami, Bale'eli, Ninmena, Ki, Damgal Nuna. A lot of the Mesopotamian deities in fact had names that contained the N-U-N spelling or a variation of it within their name, especially when referring to the reptilian species of the Anunnaki. As outer space or what is religiously called the heavens is water and below the surface of the earth is water and the air in between is a form of water. These beings, the Anunnaki, were water beings able to exist in water and from what we could tell all of its various forms that exist on earth. Just take a look at the names of some of the entities mentioned in the different region of the world previously. The Nanga, Njuzu, Nagas, the Tuatha De Danan, the Nomo, Namu, Ninil, the Anunnaki, the Nunahai of the Cherokee legends. In fact, after Noah's flood, it is Ninlil who orders that there be a segment of the female population of humans that is to remain untouched by men, to be virgin priestesses. And today, we have nuns in Catholicism. But priestesses have long existed in every segment of history because of Ninlil's initial commandment. You know what else is in the semblance of a fish? The mitre, which is the headgear of Catholic bishops, abbots, and the Pope. The Black Madonna is an image that derives from ancient comedic deities, Hather and her son and lover, Horus. The comedic version of Ninlil and her consort, Enki. From the Mesopotamian Anunnaki, the image of the Black Madonna is to whom the Pope himself bows his head to. This is not a coincidence.
Now earlier we discussed the occurrences involving the Nunahai around the vicinity of what is now Lake Nautilus. And after breaking down the name of the Nunahai and its connection to the Anunnaki and how the name itself contains the spelling of N-U-N much like the other aquatic entities of the Anunnaki, which makes sense given that when discussing the Nunahai they are usually mentioned as being near a body of water or offering retreat to humans to their dwellings below the surface or below a body of water. And in prior tapes it has been discussed that below the surface is water as was discovered with the 22 mile deep Russian Cola Super Deep Borehole, the deepest man-made hole on earth where they expected to drill beneath the surface and run into lava. Given the whole earth composition theory that we're taught in school about the layers below the surface. But instead they were met with water and this has occurred with other super deep drillings as well. Not to mention the very eerie sounds that come up through these holes from whatever is lying below in those regions. Sounds of which people believe to be coming from hell itself. The underworld after all does contain hell even if hell is a section of the underworld and not all that it contains. Neither is everything below the surface negative or demonic in nature as we are led to believe today in contrast to what the oldest texts provide on such sentiments. This happenstance connects to the hollow earth theory which is actually vindicated not only by age-old myths from around the entire world but now also modern findings. It also makes sense that the Cherokee named these entities the Nunahai containing that N-U-N spelling which correlates to an entity being aquatic because the Cherokee are a part of the initial stock of people who dwelled in Mesopotamia knowing of the Anunnaki and revering them. Of course they would still retain a lot of their tradition by the time they migrated east continually until reaching the Americas and navigating their way to the east coast of the United States, specifically the Southeast. As for Lake Nautilus, think about the fact that North Georgia has more than 40 lakes and not one is natural. It is possible the government filled these lakes for more than just water and electric companies, but to appease such entities as the Nunahai and others yet to be discussed. As the Dogon Amali stated, these entities require a watery environment to sustain themselves despite being able to exist on the surface. Their homes are beneath the surface, which is the waters beneath the surface. The lakes of northern Georgia are often believed to be haunted and it could be from a mix of things. One being the spirits of the indigenous being unhappy about the unnatural lakes and also the treachery that occurred on these lands when colonizers came over from Europe. Another being the ancient entities that dwell within these lands, just not happy at all with what's happened with modern society and technology and the unbalance and chaos it has created in these lands. As benevolent or malevolent as these entities may have been, the indigenous understood them and respected them. The colonizers and those who live on these lands today have not that same respect nor understanding and do as they please. Here is a reading from Lisa M. Russell's Underwater Ghost Town, the Nautily chapter, which says the following.
The images in this chapter came from the National Archives in Atlanta. As they were buried in cold storage, my son Samuel carefully pulled the old negatives and scanned ghostly scenes not seen for years. Perhaps you will see a Mrs. Garth in these photos. The strangest images are men digging up graves. In the path of Natalie Lake, there were eight cemeteries with 86 graves. One report stated three small cemeteries were below elevation, 1,785 feet below the top of the spillway flashboard. After all possible grave identifications had been made and the next of kin had been contacted, it developed that only two removals would be required. On the edge of North Carolina, the Nottily River was named for the Cherokee village of Nottily, N-A-D-U-H-L-I, whereas Nottily today is spelled N-O-T-T-E-L-Y. The village along the river was named for Daring Horseman. The heavily wooded area of mountains and valleys surrounding the upper Nottily River was eyed by power companies in the 1930s. The Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA, is the largest public power company in the United States. TVA also carefully manages the nation's fifth largest river to reduce flood damage, make rivers easier to travel, provide recreation, protect aquatic life, and keep the water clean. The TVA, shortly after its creation, looked to Nottily for flood control in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The dam was not authorized for electricity production but that would soon change. Construction began in 1941. Then World War II created an emergency demand for electricity to power the aluminum plants in East Tennessee. Nottilee Dam was authorized because it could push water downstream to the power producing Hawassi Dam. Writer Tom Bennett researched the war connection and made this conclusion. Until the threat of a world war loomed on the horizon, the 1936 Hewasi Dam's turbines turned with the clear purpose of achieving TVA's lofty goals of that first decade. These were to provide jobs and turn on the lights, generating electricity to improve the lives of the people while also preventing flooding downstream. However, I came to believe this isn't true for the 1941-43 Notley, Chutuge, and Appalachia Dams. The actual records of the engineers themselves describe how those three were built in a hurry to store more water for Hiwasi Dam. Notley and Chatuge took only about eight months, Appalachia, which is cement concrete like Hiwasi, took longer. Together these dams joined a giant system making power to help the US defeat the Axis powers of Germany, Japan and Italy in the World War then starting up in Europe. Soon it would be formally entered by the U.S. after the attack on Pearl Harbor on deck. 7. 1941. Specifically, TVA power helped make warplanes, conventional munitions and the atomic bomb. So the TVA bought 8,000 acres, relocated 91 families, and redesigned 21 miles of roads. Workmen built a simple dam. They formed the dam by building a rock and stone crib and filing the middle with earthen fill. The project was completed quickly. The gates were closed in January of 1942. A Google Maps search near Lake Nottily reveals communities, churches, and references to historical schools. The TVA documented two historical schools moved during relocation. Images frozen in time show the old Providence and Confidence schools and the new ones being built. Images found in the National Archives are rare and were taken in the fall of 1941. Rumor has it that if you have scuba gear, you can find the remains of a town that was flooded when the TVA created Lake Nottily. Like most of the lakes of North Georgia, nothing remains under the water except 
old fishing line and trash. During the lake's low point from October to April, you can hike along the shore and find interesting artifacts. Be careful as all lakes are protected from relic hunters and steep finds will be assessed. Also, like most of the North Georgia lakes, the land was originally Cherokee or Creek. It is not a far stretch to assume there were Cherokee villages along the Nautilus River, which was forded for the dam. Lake Nautilus is undeveloped and protected by the United States Forest Service. Some 70% of Nautilus shoreline protects almost half of Union County from development. It is just a few miles north of Blairsville, Georgia. The lake has cliffs for swimmers to jump and plunge into the cool mountain lake. definitely something up with that territory as mentioned before when starting this tape off discussing the real motives behind the creation of national forests, national parks, and other protected lands, waters, mountains, and forests within the United States, which seem to harbor more obvious secrets than is overtly told by powers that be. But as said in the reading of Lisa M. Russell's Underwater Ghost Towns of North Georgia, Lake Nautilus is undeveloped and protected by the United States Forest Service. Some 70% of Nautilus shoreline protects almost half of Union County from development. In oncoming tapes, it will become more apparent how instances such as this create a pattern in areas where the indigenous foretold of there being heavy paranormal activity. After colonization, these areas would later become known as protected lands. There are only so many coincidences that can occur before there is an obvious truth before us all. End of tape one.